Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Yes, hello everybody. Uh, welcome back to another episode of the ESPN Footy Pod. Uh, my name is Matt Walsh. Uh, joining me as always on the pod, Jake Michaels. Welcome to you for uh, another week. Thank you very much. How are you doing? Uh, I'm not too bad. It's, uh, it was a pretty pretty good weekend of footy. I think um, Sunday's... Sunday's uh, Sunday afternoon uh, under the roof there at, at Marvel Stadium was uh, was a pretty good game, and I think it's sort of it's starting to s- sort of cement, I think, in footy fans' minds that uh, the standard of play is is definitely on the up. I know that we've said that we're going to wait four or five weeks for coaches to sort of get their heads around the new rules, but signs are promising early, Jake. I thought the the doggies Eagles game was one of the best games I've seen in quite a while, actually. Um, and you know, earlier in the round we saw the Brisbane. Geelong game, which obviously mm. had a lot of controversy around, but also another really exciting game as well. So signs are good. Two weeks in and we've got some great games. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Christian Jolly from Champion Data. Good to have you back on the pod. Uh, you've been a busy man uh, watching some of these games. Anything jump out uh, from the weekend for you? Uh, I mean, plenty of stuff. I mean, that's what the podcast is for. But um, <laughs> no, it is. It's, no, nothing. Um, okay, we're finishing tell, the podcast. Tell, I, tell me to get back in the box. <laughs> we'll wrap it up there. <laughs> no, I just think, um, I mean, they're going to come eventually, but Blowouts, blowouts just seem like they, they might be a thing of the past. Just the way that both te- you know teams are able to control the ball, get their hands on the ball more. Um, I think you know more stoppages and congestion you have, you have the bigger team sort of beat up on the weaker teams and keep those rolling more going. Don't know. Hopefully, I just yeah got a bit in my mind that we might see a, a bit more footy sort of play till you know the results still you know up in the air late in the fourth quarter or into the third quarter even so. Yeah, broadcasters will be licking their lips hearing you say that. Uh, more eyeballs on TVs for longer is, is exactly what they want. And to be honest, probably what the game needs with, uh, you know, in terms of cash flow and all that sort of stuff after last year, because COVID is still playing funny buggers. Uh, the season's, yeah, look, it seems to be intact for now, but there's a bit a few worries about Queensland and uh, a COVID spread up there. And we'll chat about the Lions and, and well, maybe the Suns a bit later. But before we do get into the agenda, guys, something from the weekend that you noticed that we won't get time to cover in depth, Jake. We really need to come up with a, a name for this segment because that's a mouthful yeah. every time. <laughs> yeah, that's your job for the next seven days. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, it wasn't things. a massively obscure thing, but I was watching the Frio Giants game, uh, and we're talking about blowouts. Frio should have felt like Frio should have won that game by about eighty points. They absolutely dominated it. And just looking at the actual full time score, so between the two sides, they kicked eighteen goals, thirty five behinds. Which I don't know, Christian, but I feel like that's got to be some sort of not necessarily a record, but that is a horrible stat when it comes to goal kicking. Um, there were actually 21 players on the ground that had at least one behind to their name. Yeah, so yeah. Something, I've, something I've got to yeah touch on is yeah accuracy just across the competition. Just it's it's dropped every year for five seasons straight, and it's it's dropped to all time lows again this year. So um, I don't think that was the only game with um, yeah the inaccuracy. I think Adelaide kicked yeah, 20 odd behinds as well, and could almost could have almost had that game even against Sydney had they kicked straight. So yeah, accuracy has always been one that's just always left people scratching their heads of why is it going away and why is it dropping so sharply that it has been. Mm, Christian, while we, while we have you, uh, something from the weekend you noticed that we won't Yeah, probably uh, in a little bit of themes of the behinds. Again, it's not a massive one for me, but obviously with the, um, the player kicking in from the behind and the man on the mark having to stand 10 metres further back, I've just noticed a lot of key forwards and ruckmen have ended up being the man on the mark. And I would have thought that's the last person you put there. You just want someone to be able to sprint, run in their face. I've just watched a lot of ruckmen sort of, 
watched the, you know, seen a fast guy get into the goal square, pick up the ball and just thought, oh, I'm going to have to chase him off the line here. And I thought, how are teams not getting their pressure play? You know, they should be having two nominated kicking men on the marks. And if you're not on the ground, then this guy takes it. Um, that's simple. But, yeah, sort of, sort of a lot of big guys have to uh, put in, um, you know, I don't think they're full effort chasers, but half effort chasers just, just look like they're putting pressure on the guy kicking in from the goal square. Good point, though. You're giving away just a five, ten metres extra for, for nothing. Get your hmm. get your castanias out on the on the. Uh, <laughs> well, every, every, every team has a pressure forward. It's just amazing That's for me they're not getting on the market kick-ins at the moment. I think part of it is uh, the big key forwards. They kind of rule the roost up in the forward fifty, and they probably just tell everyone else to to get Jeff Clear up, out. put their hands on the knees, and take in a few uh, big breaths. But yeah, that is a good point, and I, I I do wonder about that because often you sort of think, geez, you got to close the gap a bit tighter. You get pressure on the kick, and then it might be a turnover or it goes out of bounds. So. I think it's Especially a very important now part of the game. Get the ball basically to halfway from the kicking. Absolutely. Hey, something I noticed uh, in the wake of Brisbane not being able to fly home because of this uh, emerging COVID situation, and then they've now had three extra players fly down to Victoria. Uh, you know, more rules on the run with the AFL after they apparently claimed that Brisbane had been following all protocols before they came and didn't have to lock down and still played on Friday night, which I thought was a bit strange. Uh, but that's not what I noticed. What I noticed was that a lot of the players had to go shopping for clothes because they didn't bring enough stuff with them at the time. And because they're now going to be stuck here for, well, you think until at least after round four, when they play the Bulldogs up at Mars stadium in Ballarat. Um, yeah. They're, they're cycling through training clothes and I guess casual clothes pretty quickly. So I saw a photo that Mitch Robinson posted um, out at the shops, trying to get some new, uh, new threads for the next couple of weeks. Oh, it's, uh, I wonder if they'll be expensing that to the Lions or the AFL. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just thought that was um, just something you don't really think about. I know that the Victorian clubs last year had to move pretty quickly, but they did get time to actually they were still pack. Able to pack. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I wonder how these guys are going to go away from their PS4 or PS5 for a, for a couple yeah. of weeks because I know that that's a big part of, uh, of life as a young footy player. They probably all chip in and buy one down here, I reckon. <laughs> they might. That's buy one point. for a couple of weeks and return it so it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Keep the receipt. <laughs> Very good. Hey, plenty to talk about uh, as always. Uh, I think firstly, what I want to get into is Jake. Last yes. week, um, you made a pretty bold call. It wasn't one moving of the on, big, moving on. <laughs> it wasn't one of the big calls from that we that we did um, before the season started, but. You made a call that uh, after Taylor Walker had a really good game in round one, he kicked five goals. Uh, you said there's no chance he'll kick another bag of five for the entire year. Uh, it's round two. He kicked six last week. Well, he didn't kick another bag of five, did he? <laughs> no, <laughs> but he's kicked eleven. No. He's he's kicked eleven through two two games, and you were here saying he wouldn't kick another bag. Yeah, I did. I'm going to own own the call. Uh, <laughs> one of my best. Uh, calls that I've made, but um, no, look, he, he's playing well, best he's played in a long, long time. And um, uh, let's not sugarcoat it, he's on track for 121 goals this season, Jake. He is, he's and you on said track he wasn't going to kick a bag. Well. Will he get that? <laughs> Coleman, is, is he in the comp? Is he a genuine chance of winning the Coleman? Well, this is kind of what I want to talk to you guys about. It sort of seems, I know, very small sample size, and we can't get ahead of ourselves, um, but it kind of seems like the key forwards having a bit of a renaissance because I know that. Last year, we talked on the pod a little bit about small forwards, and I know that key forwards still topped the Coleman list, but it seems like this year, key forwards are getting on the end of balls a lot more and having more shots at goal. And, and you know, I, I know that Tex has got 11 so far through two rounds, but are we seeing a bit of a re-emergence of, of a genuine key forward given these new rules and 
balls can sort of come from more angles of attack inside 50 and defenders aren't sort of funneling the players into pockets as, as, as we've kind of grown to see over the last year or two? Um, so I think you've got to probably take away the word key. So right, at yes. the moment, the evidence isn't sort of pointing towards it's just the key forwards that are benefiting from, benefiting from it. It's just the forward line in general. So the biggest stat probably for me so far for the first two weeks is 54.2 inside 50s per game. That's at what we call world record levels. Um, you know, usually teams average around 51 to 52 inside 50s per game. That's going back to since champion data started. The, the numbers always hovered pretty closely together. So we're up at 54.2, which is, you know, plus three or four from previous years. Um, so the ball's in there more often. Um, at the moment, you know, kicks inside 50 are getting marked 49% of the time, up from 46% in previous seasons. So more more players are taking marks because the kicks coming in are cleaner. Uh, but again, it, it's it's small forwards, it's, it's mids pushing forward and key forwards that are all benefiting from it. So again, just looking at competition in uh, in general as a whole. This week we saw 26 players uh, kick three or more goals uh, within a single round. So sort of just, I thought that number seemed a bit high to me. So it was the equal fifth most in a round since 2017 um, to have 26 players kick three or more goals. But again, looking at the big goals, we only saw Tex was the only one that kicked more than five from the weekend. So we've had other other competitions where we've had, you know, uh, sorry, other rounds where we've had six or seven guys kick more than five in a round and kick a big bag. So, yes, we're seeing sort of more more forwards get, you know, multiple goals, but the, the big bags of goals we haven't started seeing yet. Mm, we might be jumping the gun a little bit on that. But, I mean, can we kind of put this down to something? I, I know we mentioned earlier the coming out of the back line and you, you sort of afforded that extra five to ten metres out of a kick-in. Uh, and I think you spoke a couple of weeks ago, Christian, about, um, inside 50s coming from the back half are kind of up as well. Because these teams are able to go inside 50 more and from, you know, the corridor, what seems like the corridor a little bit more, it does open up the space in the 50. So it's sort of little surprise that we're seeing more scores, even if they are behinds, as, as Jake kind of mentioned, um, from these entries. Yeah, correct. So again, looking at the whole whole ground and looking at retention from kicks, it's slightly up across every zone. So it's just getting slightly easier to find a target in each and every zone and um, the forward lines included in that. So it's probably, you know, slightly easier than it was to get it out of your back line. It's slightly easier to get it over halfway um, and it's slightly easier to hit a target inside 50. But again, it goes back to the one thing that's holding back scoring from, you know, being an absolute boom is the accuracy at the moment this year is 45.5% across the competition. Um, we were at 50.1% in 2016 um, and dropped every year since. So that's looking at goals, behinds and complete misses. Um, it's it's but dropping said, every single year. Yeah. So we're at, you know, I can 2017, 49.1 down to 47 down to 46.8, 46.7, 45.5. So we're at, we're at an all-time low now. And again, uh, there's no reason for it. Again, the, the quick question that comes back is, oh, that surely they're taking harder shots. Yes, they're taking harder shots. But even when you look at their easier shots, their accuracy is dropping from their easier shots as well. So it's, it's yeah. It's well, a, this is the thing, because I, I thought oh, fatigue would be a factor with, with you know, players now, less rotations and all, and all of that. But they're still missing shots in the first five minutes of the game. So yeah. there's no excuse. No, and you know what? This is this has been a bugbear of mine for a while because Jake, you remember years ago, going back now, I spent about two hours at work on a quiet day going through whether Don't the yellow the or the red ball <laughs> had an effect because there are more night games now. I thought you know night conditions might play a different, but there was a sort of negligible um, negligible impact in terms of scores. But yeah, it's, it's kind of strange that these elite athletes that train you know more than anyone at, at their craft 
still can't get above 50% conversion rate. And it's not like the goals are small. It's not like a, an ice hockey goal. We're talking about a, a fair chunk of like space that you can kick at. Yeah, and it's worrying that we're trending down. I mean, where are we going to be in 10 years' time? I mean, I know it's <laughs> not necessarily going to be dropping a percent every year, but you know, when you look at the last five years and we are dropping every year, that is worrying. I mean, yes, uh, does the, in all seriousness, does the AFL look at that and say, this is something we have to fix? How do you fix it as the AFL? You know, they want more goals in the game. Well, get, get your athletes to, to actually kick the goal rather than trying to make more space to almost generate more goals. Mm. You've you got to go back to the fundamentals and, and kick them. It's a yeah. good question. I, I, again, it's sort of, I don't know, that was sort of a question without notice. I don't think the AFL can fix it, can you? I don't think you can bring in a rule to increase skill, can you? Yeah. yeah. Make the goals bigger. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Hockey will come up with something. Um, it's kind of a bit of a tangent, uh, Jake, but Thursday night was interesting, speaking of key forwards and also key defenders. So Darcy Moore was... Incredible, I thought. One of the Collingwood's best players on the ground, intercepting, um, getting to positions. His disposal is excellent and arguably a top three player on the ground. However, his direct opponent, Harry Mackay, kicked four goals. Now, I, I was a bit active on Twitter after that game, looking at some of the discussion about that matchup. And it was kind of pretty split as to who won the, the contest. For me, I'm, I'm quite comfortable saying that Moore won the contest despite having four kicked on him. Is that normal or do we need to sort of now reassess what a good game is for a key forward if they're going to get more opportunities from more inside 50s? It's a really good point. Um, and I think, I don't even think it was arguable. I think Moore was probably the second best player on the ground. Right? It was Who was your first best player? Who was your top player? Jack Chris Taylor Adams. Oh. I saw your Brownlow votes. So I've got to say, I'm, I'm not quite there on that one. Who did you who did you think was best on? I thought Jack Crisp was pretty good. Oh, he had a lot of the ball, but I don't think I think Adams was probably the the one that Adams Chris. Yeah, Chris was good. Yeah, his disposal was a bit dodgy in the fourth quarter, Chris. But I thought yeah, anyway. Go on. We'll talk about the Brownlow later. Mate, you can't <laughs> sort of stat sheet. You got to watch the game. <laughs> um, no, but I thought Moore was fantastic, and he has been the first two first two weeks of the season. Mm. Um, I don't know. I think you, there were a lot of balls coming in there that he was intercepting. He was setting up a lot of the play. The fact that the fact that he had four goals kicked on him, I don't know. I I, I still think that you, if 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 you're if you're you know the blue a Blues fan, David T, you're pretty comfortable with how that matchup went. But I still think more couldn't have done much much more. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I mean. We, we talked about forwards benefiting, Christian, not not specifically key forwards, but but just forwards in general. But are there any losers from these rule changes? I know that like Lockie Neal has been tagged out of the game and, and the lack or the fewer number of stoppages might be affecting his ability to win easy ball. I've sort of noticed that a few wingmen have had down starts to the year. Is that because players are looking inboard earlier instead of going down the line and, and, and to where these traditional wingmen line up? I mean, who, who like we kind of, who's the loser out of this? <laughs> Yeah, so again, looking again after two rounds, my sort of thoughts went to the 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 inside ball winners, so the guys that are high pre-clearance disposal winners. So last year, sort of the leading pre-clearance disposal winners were Lockie Neal, Clayton Oliver, Patrick Cripps, and Andrew Brayshaw were sort of all up there. Take two of those, Oliver and Brayshaw, they've been racking them up continuously in the two games this year, this um, season. 
and then Patrick Cripps and Lockie Neal, but, you know, Patrick Cripps could be a whole lot of discussion, injuries and things, but Lockie Neal also sort of had two down games. So, again, wouldn't make, wouldn't make a sweeping statement that it's screwing all the inside midfielders, but to me that feels like the one area of the game that we're sort of, we've, we've taken away stoppages and that sort of that highly contested ball um, and moved it to the outside. So, yeah, they'd be, they'd be the guys I'd be keeping a close eye on just to see someone like Lockie Neal and watching Mark O'Connor and what he did on Friday night against him. I feel like these players are easier to tag. It, it got to a stage that it, players got stopped being tagged because they were just too good inside. So there's no point tagging Dangerfield because he's just going to beat you inside and handball it out. And you've got a bloke that's just following him on his backside that's now out of the comp- you know, out of the play while well, Dangerfield fires out a handball to Mitch Duncan and Selwood and you, you're one down. So I think coaches moved away from trying to tag guys at stoppages and just try to actually concentrate on winning the stoppage and then go with a guy out in the spread. Now that the game's more out in the open, you put someone like Mark O'Connor and just say, just run everywhere Lockie Neal does. He's not going to beat, he's not going to get in and under and win 10 disposals at the stoppage across the game. He's going to need to get, you know, out and get handball receives and uncontested marks. And he just could not get away from Mark O'Connor. So again, I feel like the tagger might come back into vogue in terms of if we've got a good runner that can just continually run with you all day, it's probably going to be easier to tag a guy that's trying to get uncontested possessions than it is to tag a guy that's trying to win the contested possessions. We had... Absolutely, because you can, when you're in those con- congested stopping situations, it's much harder to lose your man to get a block and, and all of a sudden, quick, he's fired out a handball and the, and, the ball, and the ball's off in the other direction. But when you're running around the ground, if you're locking Neil trying to get a touch, if, if, you've got, if you've got someone right next to you not allowing you to get those handball receipts, it's impossible to do. And this is why I, I scratch my head when people say, oh, some players are untaggable. It's like everyone is taggable. In, but as you say, it's much easier to restrict someone's restrict someone getting the ball when uh, it's uncontested as opposed to in a contested situation. Um, we had a, a podcast episode, I think, year one, so a couple of years ago now, where it was basically bring back the tagger. And it kind of staggers me, but they're not used more because they can be very effective. Um, and not all the time. I mean, sometimes you can kind of break a tag, but... For the most part, I think if you can send someone to the opposition's most dangerous player, why wouldn't you? Uh, yeah. It's just uh, beggar's belief sometimes that, that some and of these players... sometimes you know, it doesn't even need to be the opposition's best player. It could be you know their second or third best player or someone yeah. who is Sets having... Them up influence. from half-back or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, it's we see we see players... We've seen someone like Caleb Daniel get... Um, get not necessarily tagged, but have a sh- shown a little bit more attention. And these players coming off half back that set up a lot of the play. And again, they're getting a lot of their ball uncontested. And you having you have more success doing that than probably if you're tagging someone like the Bont who's tr- who's in the centre firing the ball out. But to the point about players on the outside getting benefiting more from this because of the less stoppages. You talk about Jack Crisp and someone like Jack McRae. I mean, these guys are racking the ball up getting it a little bit more on the outside. So do we expect that trend to continue throughout the year? Well, at the moment it has, again, the first two weeks. Dry conditions always help. So, again, when, when we start getting a bit more wet games and wet footy and things like that, that might, you know, bring the numbers back towards stoppage and congestion. But at the moment, it's, yeah, it's about getting on your bike and winning the ball on the outside. And, again, the two guys you mentioned, Jack Chris, probably underrated. Again, we, we sort of see all their tracking numbers. Um Jack Crisp always in the top three for distance covered at Collingwood, whether he's playing off the halfback flank. They moved him to the wing late in the year. So he's, yeah, one of the best runners in the club. Um, and same as Jackson McRae is right up there as well. So, yeah, uh, less interchanges, more ball on the outside. They're the, they're the types of players that are probably going to um, 
yeah, become more valuable and start racking it up a little bit more. Mm, absolutely. Um, Jake, uh, I noticed that you scribbled furiously over the weekend uh, a piece after the Brisbane and Geelong debacle in the last quarter. Uh, you're basically calling for a captain's challenge in the same style as the NRL, uh, whereby I guess once a game, uh, well, until you lose a challenge, captains can signal to an umpire that they'd like a decision challenged uh, and it would avoid howlers like what happened in the last 25 seconds on Friday night where Mark Litsars was, uh, well, tackled. He didn't dispose of the ball or he threw it. You could either take your pick really. Uh, and the uh, umpire who was right in front of the where that where that throw or that dispossession occurred who, who pay was the free umpire? Kick. uh it was umpire o'gorman i know that many many in the media don't like to name umpires but they do it with eleni gluftsis for instance i know that happens a lot so um umpire o'gorman had a mare there to be fair um and the afl came out and admitted they had it wrong so jake make your case for a captain's challenge go and check out the article on espn.com.au as well because uh, he makes some pretty good points but let's duke it out on the pod Look, I think um, firstly, it's a it's an interesting one because, you know, people don't want the rules change and they say, don't change the rules, don't change the rules. But then the minute something like this happens, oh, it was a disgrace. Well, you're going to continue getting these things happening every now and then if we don't have something that can, can get the right result. The AFL, there's no reason why there's no, whether it's a captain's challenge or a coach's challenge. What I pose to you guys is give me one reason why we shouldn't have it. One reason. Uh, I think, well, I could give you a few, but one that sticks out in my mind is it'll be exploited uh, in the sense that I believe if, if there's a team and say you're up by two points with a minute left and there's a contest at your half forward line and the ball gets turned over, um, you know, and, and someone gets tackled and, and the ball gets turned over and then the other team sort of starts getting a run on and, and they've got, got to run a captain or a coach can just call a challenge and the play stops and comes back. And there's no chance for this other team to sort of counterattack. I, I know that in the NRL, the NRL is a bit more stop start because you have tackles mm. and you have all this sort of stuff, but, but footy moves so quickly. And I know you're looking at a situation on Friday where the ball was taken over the line and a behind was paid and you could probably, everyone could take a breath. And if you could challenge, you would, but the fact that it's such a free and flowing game, it, I just don't think it lends itself to it. And it's, I know that you say that it's, you know, one wrong challenge a game, but I could just see it being exploited to a point where it, it, it's cheating, basically. Yeah, I see what you mean. Um, maybe, maybe, and again, there's no hard and fast way this this has to be done. I'm no, just, no, you're right. The, 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 the whole idea of using technology in any way is to get the result correct more often than, than we currently do. Mm. What if the idea was to have one coach slash captain's challenge for the year, one <laughs> unsuccessful one for the year? So you can, so you only would ever use it in a situation where you are convinced that you're right yeah. and you can't use it tactically. You have one one unsuccessful one for the whole year. Yeah, I'm, that I'm interested. That, and what that happens? Way, the coach presses a button and, and the siren, whoop, whoop, and the sirens go off, and the uh, TV. You can imagine BT when someone presses the coach's challenge button. Oh my God, Jim, he's pushed the button. We're going to have a challenge. I just think that, and again, I, I get your point. The NRL is a lot more stop-start, and, and the other thing is, we're, they're playing on a smaller field. It, it's hard if you're if you're if you're the captain and you're 
80 metres away from the play. I get it. You might not be able to see it. You're not seeing the replays and the you're not seeing it as we see it on the TV or as the commentators see it. So it is tricky. Maybe it is a case of the coach calling. But, but then you've got the problem of kind of like they're having cricket where you only have a certain amount of time to call the challenge. Otherwise, you can't wait till you see replays on the screen to say, well, hang on a minute, that was a throw or that was whatever mm-hmm. it might be. So there is a lot to, to work in it, but I'm just the, – the idea of having some sort and, – and that's what I pose is some sort. It's not necessarily this is what has to be done and this is how we do it. It's just the idea of introducing some form of a challenge mm-hmm. system – to make sure we don't have these types of incorrect decisions happening, and again, and it was a, it was a shocker. It was it was, it was a shocker, shocker and, the, and it cost it cost Brisbane the game. And I know that there are other decisions throughout the game which impact goals or or moments, but the fact that it was the last play of the game, the free kick was so blatant. The umpire had a front on view of the situation and was what, I, what I'm I'm prepared to say was too scared to make the call. Absolutely, because if that happens in the first quarter of the game, that's called every single time. Well, I mean, every Christian, you said you, you said in, in our pre-podcast meeting that it wasn't even the the, the biggest howler the, the from that game. I, I didn't I didn't think so personally. It, it was clearly the most influential and it was yeah. most up in lights. And yes, it, it deserves to be spoken about. And again, um, I mean, the AFL probably had no choice, but they've come out and left the umpire hanging, in my opinion, by coming out and saying, "Yeah, he made the wrong decision." Well, that's good, but what's the you know what are we as Jake's alluding to, what are we doing? We know a mistake was made. How are we going to make sure it doesn't happen again? Mm. Uh, but the one to me, there was one earlier. It was, it was um, Geelong. It must have been in the third quarter because Geelong were kicking to that end down the right. But Geelong got a goal from, um, what I mean, Cam Guthrie basically handing the ball. He was getting tackled and the ball was still in his yes. hands. The Geelong player was just standing in front of him, goal side, took the ball out of his hands, turned around and snapped a goal. And I just thought that's the first rule I learned Joel in Sell football, as a four-year-old or as a five-year-old, <laughs> the only way to pass the ball to your teammate is a hand pass. Is with a kick or a handball, yeah. and that was neither. And it's just, it's just funny to me that I saw that one. And just thought, oh, gee, that's that's very wrong. That's that's a something that goes out on the rules DVD at the start of the year and says you can't do this. You can't mm. hand the ball. But um, so that you know that that could have been a captain's challenge right there, and they could have Brisbane could have used it there and taken that goal off Geelong, and then we have the howler at the end of the game that happens again. You know, do they get another, mm. um, you know, maybe on your rules, they get another captain's challenge because they haven't got their first one wrong. But mm. to me, yeah, I just think mistakes are made continuously. It's something, it's part of the game. Yep. Um, we've brought score review in. I don't think score review has been the biggest success that it could have been. I think score review, again, we will... Happy to see it come in. Um, I always go back to Geelong St Kilda Grand Final. Tom Hawkins hit the behind, hit a hit the goal post, um, but the goal umpire missed it. We paid it a goal. It was supposed to just it was supposed to pick up things like that, things that we can all clearly see that are wrong that you quickly get fixed and changed and make them correct. Now we're seeing things that just go back to umpire's call. We don't have the right vision for yep. it. Some, some things are being changed. I know last year something was changed, and then they came out two days later and said that it shouldn't have been changed. So you. People want perfection. People want mistakes not to be made. It's just going to have. It's it's just going to happen. And I, I think part of footy is you're going to have these um, the the freeze that go for you or go against you. But again, the again this opens up a whole other can of worms. It goes back to the whole philosophical discussion of I think they need to be full timers. I think we yep, need full time officials. And and that's what I was going to bring up. Jake's point. Yeah, you can um, have an umpire review, but who's reviewing that decisions? Is it just another fourth umpire who is also part-time, whose peers are out in the field that have made that decision that are 
reviewing their peers to see. Yeah, it, it all sort well, of wasn't works this around the main about. issue with the, the initial score review where it was like, well, who's act, who's in this? <laughs> it was some intern. <laughs> yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was a bit like that, and they brought the arc in. So I, I think something mm. similar. It's it's the whole. Um, yeah, I, and again, you go back to having umpires full time. They're still going to make mistakes, but I just yeah. think they're going to be more, um, more. Uh, what's the word? Sort of accountable. Uh, accountable. Uh, That's yeah. yeah, more accountable to them because it's your full time job. So. Before we move on, we, we, yeah. we've been. I know we've been banging on about it. Before we move on, something just popped into my head, Jake. What about a VAR style review where you can call the review, or the coach can call the review in the box, but the play will continue until the next stoppage, and if a yeah. goal happens, it gets pulled back to that spot. Yeah, I'm, and that was part of what I mentioned. You know, it's, we see that in, in in football in the A League, we see the VAR used and how they'll they'll continue playing, but then they can bring it back and and, and check something. The only dif- the difference is there's only certain things that they'll check. They'll check red cards and they'll check penalties and stuff, but they're not checking every how the AFL. Well, the difference is they they just choose to check it, or the or the referee chooses to check it, whereas. This would be yeah. a coach's one. So if they pressed a button in the box, um, the umpire on the ground gets a little notification in his ear, but he'll he'll let the play go maybe. Um, and if, if something does happen where it's a turnover on the halfback flank and the other team runs down and scores mm. a goal, they can say yeah. they then say we're actually reviewing the decision back there. And if it finds nothing's wrong, that this eliminates the the um, the tactical one. So they yeah. find nothing's wrong, um, the goal stands. And if they find something wrong, maybe the ball comes back. Oh, look, it's a can of worms, like we said. Um, but it was a howler, and, and the Lions could be aggrieved to think it cost them four points. Um, before we get into, well, the coaching pressure gauge, uh, I think I'd like to bring up Christian. You said uh, a, bit, a bit of a talk of the town in the champion data offices at the moment about two different players. One is a well-known superstar and the other's just in his, he's played two games. Um, Dusty and Errol Goulden, you reckon that their score assist games are, are looking pretty solid so far through two rounds? Yeah, something that definitely caught my eye early days with Dustin Martin. Um, again, we talked about him in um, before round one about how good his off-season was and how he's, you know, really embracing becoming a professional footballer. Um, it seems like he's got the rest of the game mastered. He can kick the ball 60 metres, he can win the ball, he can win one-on-one contest, he can kick goals. Um, but hey, now Mark. this year it seems to be just his score assist. He's taking his score assists through the roof. So six in round one against Carlton and another five this week. So it's uh, only the third time um, since score assists were recorded that someone's had two games in a row of at least five score assists. No one's ever done it three times. Um, so again, looking at him, he's had 11 score assists in his two games, average, average of five and a half. No one's ever averaged more than 2.2 score assists across the season. So it's just an early watch for me. I feel like Dustin Martin's going out of his way um, to set up his teammates in scoring positions, which is always a, it's a great stat to have. It you know it, it it's valuable on the scoreboard, but it also gets you know those little handball over the tops where Castagna can kick his fourth goal or something that brings Castagna's mood up and you know Dusty's mood up and you know so it's. It's a good stat to sort of go out of your way to try to achieve, but it is, to me, it seems to be, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some sort of uh, inside talk around Dustin Martin and seeing if he's set himself a challenge to have the most score assists in the season. It's very noticeable to me that he's uh, um, looking inboard before. Yeah, it might not be something like that, but as I said, it might just be something internally where it's just like, well, you you can do everything else well. Let's see if you can break the record for score. So you're thinking it's like Geelong back in the day when uh, Stevie J and and big Cam Mooney had that goal assist um, competition of so who could get more. And then I've also heard of whatever it was. Yeah, and then there was the Castagna, Dan Butler, Pressure Axe uh, battle. So we do know a few people like to look at the stat sheet and have their little 
battle. So I don't know if he's having an internal battle or whether it's just something he's, you know, identified. It could be totally wrong, but clearly going his way to set up teammates and doing a, an extremely good job at it. Um, and then going to someone I would love to call my boy, Errol, Errol Golden, who um, yeah. is just a, he's a champion data boy, really. He's uh, been dominating footy since under-16 championships. Um, you know, we, we took look at ranking points. We sort of say, you know, 100's a good game. He scored 200 in four or five of four five different games that we've covered of him across his junior career. So some, um, yeah, absolutely blinding numbers. But, yeah, across his first two games, he's had 20 score involvement. So this isn't your direct score assist or your goals. It's just being involved in a scoring chain, whether that is a goal, a score assist, or further up the chain. Uh, so he's had nine one week, 11 the next. So it's the equal fourth most, or, yeah, equal fourth most score involvements um, across of anybody across their first two games. Uh, but again, the other four guys on the list all have asterisks. So Tim Kelly started at the age of 22 or 23. Michael Barlow, similar age. Cameron Howitz, who is a, a Richmond player, who again was 21, 22, sure. uh, had 22 score involvements in his first two games. And James Podiazzi was 53 or something when he played his first two games. So again, the only <laughs> teenager on the list, the only genuine debutant player uh, to have 20 score involvements within their first two games. So looking at the next best teenagers behind him, Ollie Wines had 18 in his first two games. Nat Fife had 17. Uh, Tom Papley, who was 19, he had 16. And Jake Need also had 16. So there's some pretty good names, Wines and Fife are just behind him. But uh, that's the watch for me is Errol Golden, similar to Caleb Daniel when he was a kid, everything he touches turns to gold. <laughs> oh, he just had to get that in there, didn't he? <laughs> Take a mark. You're done for the day. <laughs> Everything you touch is terms of God. Very good. Uh, definitely one to watch. I think with Dusty, it's been quite noticeable about passing balls off and, and looking inboard and all that sort of stuff. Um, but hey, just Gordon on Dusty, um, he's the only player in the in my uh, Brownlow medal tracker to go perfect so far, three and three. So check out the Brownlow medal predictor. We've got Martin up top. Uh, we've got a 501 to one shot in second place at the moment. So go and check out the Brownlow medal predictor. Who's that? Oh, is that Tex? It is Tex. Way to, way to spoil that. Uh, uh, my apologies. Way to spoil that one. <laughs> yeah, wait till you hear who's third. Go and check it out. ESPN.com.au forward slash AFL. Uh, Jake, um, coaches under pressure. We, I've sort of talked, we talk about this every now and then. You sort of we periodically, yeah. we, we periodically come back and we sort of, you know, the, the coaching power, coaching pressure power rankings, uh, so to speak. But like there are a couple, I think, that are now pretty comfortably ahead of the others uh, in, in Leon Cameron, who we've sort of talked about a bit over the time and, and who signed a two year extension last year. And David Teague, after we talked about the Blues expectations heading into 2021. Do you agree that they're, they're probably the two front runners for coaches under the most pressure at this point of the year? I don't think David Teague is anywhere near what um, what Leon Cameron is at the moment. I I know you and a lot of other people had high expectations on Carlton. I I didn't have I didn't think Carlton would make finals this year. I thought would be kind of around the mark, but not making finals. And I don't think Carlton's played particularly poorly in their first two games. Um, Leon Cameron, Leon Cameron is. He's in real strife. I don't think he's going to coach out the year. To be completely honest, I can't. I can't see it happening. I know he signed a contract extension. I know that they've given him the support. But the way the Giants have started this year, and and say what you want about the the, the, the team that's out on the park, but they look as flat as anything. And they really should have lost by eighty plus points to Frio um, on on Sunday. They were awful. And they lack the a bit of getting... oomph, don't they? Just a bit of oh. uh, spark and. 
But none of their lead, and, and again, whether you want to blame Leon Cameron for this or not, but none of their leaders stand up. You know, you look at the likes of Steve Cornelio, uh, Josh Kelly, Phil Davis, Callum Ward. None of them stood up and did anything notable in the game. Toby Green was pretty good throughout. I think his numbers were sort of padded a little bit in the last quarter. But of all their top players, they were all awful. None of them did anything that actually was like... There was no moment in the game where, where a Kelly or a Canelo was like, right, I'm grabbing this game by the scruff of the neck and we're mm. going to get ourselves back in it. Because the thing was, because Freo kept missing, the Giants were, were hanging around. They never killed them early. So they had it, they, they had opportunities to actually get themselves right back into the game. But no one stood up and did it. Cam, Leon Cameron didn't make any changes. I, I just fear that... I don't see any way that, that if the Giants want to turn this around quickly and not fall back down and, and risk doing a Gold Coast, I don't see any way that Leon Cameron coaches out this season. Speaking of Gold Coast, this is a, a fun comparison that everyone seems to do at least once a year, but who's closer to the flag, the next flag, Gold Coast or GWS? Well, Gold Coast, because they're on the way up. The Giants mm. are on the way down. Fair enough. Um, on Teague... Uh, I think what I've been most disappointed about Carlton this year has been the pressure numbers, the, 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 the tackles, tackles broken, um, just pressure on, on the ball carrier. You saw first week they let in, you know, 70 million inside 50s against Richmond, which is just not good enough. And then last week... It's not against, good enough, but again, you got to... Yeah, but like, about Richmond. Like, yes, and, and, and then against Collingwood, a team they were favoured to beat. Um, I think by half time that they, they Collingwood had only had you know how many inside fifties they had, but they'd had almost as many scoring shots. At one point they had eight, eight inside fifties for for seven scoring shots. Or, or so I, I made a mental note of it, but it's um, it's beyond me. There's just no pressure on the ball carrier, and, and I think that comes down to coaching and, and how they're being coached because uh, defensively they're they're a mess and and below what you I know, thought they'd be their output would be so it's, far this year. It is a very um... It's a drastic change because I think when Bolton was there, they did spend a lot of investing a lot of time in defence. And, you know, there was always that big stat. It was, you know, 40, 45 games before Carlton kicked 100 points, um, you know, between each other. So they, they did, with the young team, they sort of put all the, invested a lot of their time early days in defence. And you would have thought they would build something that they could build on. And then they just had to build from that and work in their attack. It seems like, again, the first two games this year, it's it's been really, really nice crisp ball movement to watch but mm. yeah the opposition what they're able to do with it you're you, correct the, the two numbers that got me were the the high inside 50 rate that richmond were able to um get against them in round one but collingwood just to be able to to concede 70 points collingwood in one half of footy who are not a not an avalanche scoring team at all uh they were just getting through too easy so again to me it looks like carlton's gone a little bit too offensive minded this year it, it's it does look good. The ball movement, you know, adding in Zach Williams and Saad and having a bit of a forward line with potency, you know, and trying to match it. We've, we've had two high-scoring games. But, yeah, again, the defence is probably something that was was fixed three years ago. It's sort of where is that going now? Mm. Anyone else under pressure, Jake, before we move on? Uh, oh, there's always coaches under pressure. I mean, you know, we talked about Simon Goodwin. Um, you know, had a good start to the year. Well, and they... Nathan Buckley, Collingwood started pretty well. So I think there will all we will see more coaches under pressure as the season goes on. But I think, yeah, I, you know, you, you talk about Teague, but I, I think Leon Cameron is sitting head and shoulders at the top of that sort of tree at the moment in terms of under pressure coaches. And you, you'd need to turn things around pretty quickly if if um, he wants to retain his position, I would have thought. Fair enough. Uh, before we get to our favourite segment, Justified Hype or Hyperbole, just a couple of quick announcements. 
ESPN podcast family has actually expanded this season. Uh, if you're a basketball oh. fan, which I know a lot of ESPN fans are, uh, make sure you get around uh, Aussie Woj, Olgan Yulich, and his pod Ball in the Real World. There's some really, really good chats that he has with uh, basketball players, both uh, based here and over in the States. His chat with Andrew Bogut uh, is, in particular was really in-depth, so you've got to make sure you check that one out. Uh, also, the inimitable Sam Bruce and the rugby team up in Sydney producing Scrum Reset. Uh, fresh pod out today, so tune in unless you're a Waratahs fan because uh, that'll be some tough listening, I think, this week, Jake. And <laughs> the, uh, the ladies from the Far Post pod do some excellent work talking all things woman, women's soccer, uh, both here in the W League and abroad. So check them out just in time for the W League finals wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, justified hype or hyperbole, guys. I will say a statement and uh, you got to tell me whether the hype is justified or I'm talking in hyperbole. Jake, firstly for you, Patrick Dangerfield playing mm. a VFL reserves match while banned is against the spirit of the game. And I know he's not the only one to do it, but he's the most recent. Um, I don't know if it's against the spirit of the game, but it is strange. I think I read it. I read something during the weekend. Um, not sure who said it, but what happens if he was to get suspended in that? What if he was to hit someone in that and get suspended? Then what happens? Mm. I think the whole point of being suspended and missing out playing, you can't play anything. You know, you, you, if you're suspended for a week, three weeks in his case, you forfeit your right to play for three weeks. And that's part of your penalty. If you want to play, you got to go and play. You go to the training track and you kick balls by yourself. You're not, you can't play a game. So I don't, is it, I, is it against know, the spirit of the game? I don't know if it's the spirit or it's just, it kind of makes a mockery of the game. I think it right. makes a mockery of the game where you can get a suspension and still play. Yeah. No, I think I, 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 I don't think either way, I don't think it was right. He shouldn't have played. Christian, the demons are revealing their true colors and it's the 2018 version of themselves. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to say justified hope going on my big call, but I think it's still hyperbole a little bit early days. Um, there is some good signs. Again, when you're looking at only two games and things like that, you're trying to look at what numbers, you know, you, you sort of can keep um, that, you know, sort of uh, point you in the right direction of how a team's going. For me, quarters one, they're six and two at the moment. So again, winning as many quarters as they can. Um, but again, the, the games they've played haven't, they've been more on the outside. They haven't been as um, reliant on their contested footy, which is one thing they had to fix, but they've still been a little bit scrappy, still haven't been as, you know, highly skilled as some of the other games we've seen. So, um, Definitely doing, they, they're going better, but I don't think they've reached their uh, pinnacle yet. Just off the top of your head, have they, are they fixing their inside 50 conversion issues? Uh, so they've gone to, I think they're 12th or 11th from 18th. So the only way, <laughs> the only way it was yeah. up for them, but um, again, it, it's slight improvements. But again, for me, the, again, and going back to the way the game's changed, the biggest challenge for them was going to be able to um, get back on the outside game and dominate some outside footy, which they've done the first two games so i think that's the first box for them to tick which they've done and now the scoring will probably be the next thing they have to fix fair enough uh jake sam reed's hit on nat fife was worse than Dangerfields on kelly this will be a little controversial but i think it will not worse but as bad um you know and a lot of people will think that's crazy to say but I was stunned. The The general reaction after that was everyone seemed to be in the camp if he was bracing for contact. When you brace for contact, you don't lift your, your forearm and shoulder up, you know, almost to a 90-degree angle. 
to, to, at the point of contact. There was no need for him to do that. He could have easily tucked his arm in, leaned forward and let and let Fife hit him. He's raised his arm up as Fife's hit him and he's gone down. And again, we always talk about the the result being the the being the be all end all of all this stuff, which I which I do disagree with, but that's what was taken into account with Dangerfield last week. Mm. Fife being concussed, why should why should this be any different? Why should this be not why should this not be two or three week suspension? Um, I think that one of the big differences is Fife was making tracks towards where Reed was, whereas Dangerfield hunted down Kelly, um, and and obviously hit him hit him high. Uh, look, the you're you're right about the um the the outcome playing a more of a, a role than the actual act, which I also disagree. Which is true. Yeah, I, I yeah. disagree with that. And if that was the case, then I think Reed would get off a lot more free, uh, a lot more freely than than Dangerfield would. And I think that would be fair, is my opinion. I think the biggest difference is, well, the the other thing is, Kelly could see Dangerfield coming toward him, and and Dangerfield went for the bump at the shoulder, and he did go high, and he was right to get a suspension. He did go high, and if we know if you bump it, you and you miss, you're going to get weeks, which he did. Fife couldn't even see Reed. Mm. Fife was blindsided by him and knocked straight to the ground. He had no. Kelly could at least brace for the contact of danger. I'd, I'd argue Fife, Kelly couldn't either. Kelly had just yeah, fired off a handball. Kelly, Kelly's as vulnerable as Fife in that situation. That's why I've always been big on once I've got once a player's gotten rid of the ball, that's when you need to protect them. They've done yep. the right thing. They've gone in one possession, disposed of it. The two legal things you're allowed to do, you can't be hitting a bloke late. So, so I, should Reed I, be getting pleased? Um, he got, he got two. He still got two. Yeah. yeah. I'm. I'm. Com- I, I think Reed should have got three. I think it should have been similar to Dangerfield because again, both got both. You hit a bloke in the head who got concussed and yeah. you know couldn't finish the game. Um, but yeah, I just argue. Again, I'm. I'm very big on the after disposal and protecting the after disposal player. So I can't sort of give Dangerfield a pass for his one because I think Kelly was completely open and mm. susceptible for a yeah. bit of a hit. You know, I agree. Dangerfield should. Be, no, well, I, I know he's got two weeks, but I'm just saying, should he? Should he have? Weeks? That's my point. Yeah, I'm, I'm for comfortable. That? With, I think it clearly should be. I'm comfortable with Dangerfield getting three and Reed getting two. I think, in my opinion. Uh, I think if you, I, I personally think, and the last thing I'll say on this, if you were to show, if you were to show the average person both incidents, I reckon most people would say that the Reed one was three and the Dangerfield one was two. I might put that out on Twitter later with a with a poll. We'll see what uh, what the results are. Um, Christian, last one, justified hype or hyperbole before we wrap things up for the day. Brad Hill has been a bust for St Kilda. Uh, hyperbole again. Not a great, not a great performance on the weekend. It's, he's that type of player, though. So Brad Hill is very much your outside, giving the ball, and he's going to sort of, you know, he's going to hit some impossible kicks, but he might some sort of, bite, you know, um, bite off. Put it the side of a barn door on shoot. Saturday yeah. night. Exactly. So it was one of his worst kicking, kick, kicking games at St Kilda, um, and you know, across the first two games, he's down at fifty percent. Usually, he's about a seventy percent kicker, uh, but I would just hold fire, Saints, because the way. The game is being played. I'll guarantee you by round 12, 13, 14, sometimes during the year we'll say, how good was Brad Hill in that final quarter? His 300 metres gain and his five long kicks that hit targets will win you a game of footy. So, uh, no, definitely not a bust yet. Just this a, isn't a, gonna a be another, couple of weeks maybe. This isn't going to be another Jake and Tech situation, is it? <laughs> well, I hope not. I, hopefully he's still in the side by round yeah, 13, hope, 14. But <laughs> Hopefully for the uh, Secure fans, he, w- he will be uh, picking up uh, the form. Hey, before we do go, um, 
few big columns coming this week. Swans fans, if you're if you're a fan of what mm. uh, the Sydney the start the start Sydney's had, uh, we got a, a piece coming from Kane Pittman this week. Um, he talked to Callum Mills about the the culture of uh, of youth that's building at Sydney. Jake, I know that you've been all over that one, so um, that'll be a good one to read later in the week. Yeah, uh, really exciting. And also uh, our good friend Rowan Connolly, who's not on the podcast this week um, and hopefully will join us soon um, back on the pod. He's actually going to list his five most watchable players he's ever seen in the AFL, which um, I've had a sneak peek at his at his list and it's pretty it's a it's a pretty good list. So um, get around that one as well, which will come out tomorrow. Absolutely. Um, footy tips, get your tips in. Um, make sure that you are you are getting them in because I forgot Thursday. Thursday's the one that gets me every time. Oh, this is this is classic. You. you have a bad round one and then you say you forgot and then you just that you, you've lost all. Uh, you're out, mate. You, you're oh. gone. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I'm. I'm actually. I'm actually third at the moment. Um, out of three on the ESPN Footy Pod rate rankings, so I'm bottom. Um, but if that makes sense. So get your tips in. Otherwise, you'll be like me and you'll be um, you'll be well behind. Guys, thanks for joining me again. Uh, big uh, episode. Good to chat with you both. Uh, we'll speak to you all in the next one. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod wherever you get your podcasts.